Thanks, Levi. Hello, everyone. Zaki, can you um, bring me the little clicker, please? I really hope I don't have like chocolate chip cookie crumbs <laughs> because I just snuck one from the nipples um, from the back. Um, it was very, thank you. It was very nice of Narai to bring us um, some baked goods. And I know that Kim has made some soup and her famous glass noodles as well. So I'm super excited for nipples time. I'm very hungry. I had a rough morning. <laughs> I, um, I don't know why. I'm a very optimistic person, I think, because Roy was preaching out at um, Nari Warren, I think, wherever that is. And um, he was like, you sure you're going to be fine? I was like, I'll be fine. I've got this. You go, kids, like lunch, I'll, you know, I'm good. And then at like one o'clock, I think I called him in panic, like, nope, I don't have time to make lunch. And I am like just trying to, um, you know, get dressed, trying to get the kids dressed and trying to get to church. And he was like, all right, well, he had uh, food that he had um, at the conference office from because he works out there. And on Friday or Thursday, he had extra food that he had left in the fridge there. So he was like, I'll swing by Nanawading, I'll grab food, we'll meet at church, we'll, you know. So then I got here and I was like starving because I hadn't eaten. And so while he fed the kids and he took them to the park, I snuck the chocolate chip cookies in the back. <laughs> so hopefully, and I didn't have, to, I, I should have checked the bathroom in the bathroom whether I have any crumbs, but hopefully I don't. Hopefully you've had a calmer morning than I did. And uh, hopefully you've had a good week. It's good to see you again Um so we're finishing, I know it's been a while, we've had a little bit of a break, but we're finishing, well, I shouldn't say finishing because we're finishing next week, but today is part three of our series on the seven reasons why we read the Bible differently. So next week, we will finish the series. Just as a quick review, in part one, we focused on the different understandings of how the Bible was inspired uh, and written, and this leads to different interpretations of the Bible. We talked about how there's um, two main camps of thought, verbal inspiration, which is the idea that God inspired every single word, uh, almost like in dictation form. The other idea is thought inspiration, which is that God inspired the writers with thoughts and ideas, which they then expressed um, the best they could. And so based on which camp of revelation inspiration you're on, you're going to come to very different conclusions about the Bible text. In part two, we discussed um, how our own biases and fears and lack of communal accountability can also lead to very different interpretations of the Bible passages. Um, and we talked about the importance of having community, of having robust discussions, of coming together, praying together, studying together in order to, to uh, recognize our own biases, to hear diversity of opinions and views, and hopefully then be able to come to a better understanding of the text. And so we've covered those two uh, main ideas. So then we come to part three today, which is the importance of history and looking at historical and literary context. Um, now, when it comes to number five, which is different Bible translations and commentaries, I'm not going to go too much into that today because I did talk about it already in a previous sermon. Um, and so I'm going to be focusing mainly on number six, which is historical and literary context today. And then next week will be the most practical part of our series. Uh, up until now, I've been giving you a lot of kind of, I guess, um, the theory behind it all and the philosophical you know, rationale behind it all. But next week, I'll actually share the tools and the tips and the strategies on how to study the Bible. And we're going to practice it as a church um, together. All right. So just so that we are all starting from blank slate, 
The Bible is an ancient text of 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. So let that sink in for a moment. Okay, The Bible is a very complex book because it's 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 authors in three different languages. It's divided into two main sections, Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament consists of 39 books written by 30 individuals who lived between 1400 to 400 BC, and it's, uh, it was written in the Hebrew language. The New Testament consists of 27 books written by about 10 authors from about 50 to 95 AD, written in Koine Greek and in Aramaic. So these authors were from all walks of life. You've, you had shepherds, you had farmers, you had kings, you had tent makers, doctors, fishermen, priests, philosophers. And they had different personalities and they came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And they wrote for different reasons. And when you look at the uh, different books of the Bible, you have different genres as well. On the one hand, you have, in, and I, uh, you see on the chart there, you've got law books, which you would read very differently than the poetry books. And you would read that, those books very differently than you would history books. Um, or the letters. You've got in the New Testament letters. Some of them were personal letters addressed to one person. Some of them were corporate letters written to a whole congregation. And then you also have prophecy books, which were meant to be written not for uh, not only for their current context, but also for future generations. And so every book of the Bible was has a different context. And so I wanted you to see kind of the big overview of that before uh, we go into some of the more details. Now, the main takeaway for today is this. God comes to us where we are. God comes to us where we are. And the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, and it's relevant for us, but it wasn't written to us. Every book of the Bible was written for a different generation at a different time. And there's important universal truths to get from that. But we have to remember that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. The original books had original audiences. So rather than imposing our culture and our views and our, our issues into the reading of the passage, we have to be, in a sense, like archaeologists, right? They go in and they have to dig and they have to uncover the layers to get to that time and then the artifact. And then they have to look at, well, what period is this artifact from? And that helps them understand the artifact uh, in its right you know, um, context and time. And same thing with missionaries. Missionaries can't just go into another culture and come and share things from their own view. They have to first understand the language and the culture of the people in that time in order to be effective. So every time we open the Bible, we have to understand that we can't just go into it without doing some study and some research and recognizing that there is a huge distance in time, culture, location, right, generation from the original audience to us. Next week, like I said, I'm going to share some of the amazing resources that we have available at our fingertips today. Thanks to many sponsored ministries, we have so many free websites and apps and videos that weren't available 30, 50 years ago. I remember growing up, my dad would have like 
twelve bookcases full of commentaries. And、uh, my dad's not a pastor, but he、um, actually he always wanted to be. And his whole life, he just loves studying the Bible. And so I remember as a kid, like going through his library when I was bored, and like he would have read biblical Hebrew for thirty minutes a day, and I'd be like, okay, let's what's this about, you know? So. That's what my dad had to do: buy and have these libraries of commentaries and books and Bible maps and all these things. But guess what? We don't need to. Today we have the internet. <laughs> Today we have so many resources that are free. Some not, some are not free, but most of them are free that we can utilize. And next week I'll show you、um, some of those resources and how to use those. But going back to this idea of the historical and literary context that is so important, I really want to emphasize. Um, the need for us to do this, and it doesn't mean that the Bible is impossible to understand on its own. There's plenty of things in the Bible that we can read, and yeah, it says forgive. For example, Roy talked about forgiveness last week. That's pretty self-explanatory. But there's a lot more in the Bible that's not so self-explanatory, and that's when you really, especially, need the historical context. All right. So one of the main themes, like I said, of the Bible is that God meets us where we are, and I want to take the time to really flesh out this idea. For example, God meets humanity where we are physically. In the beginning, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, it says that God physically walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So God met them where they were, and then thousands of years later, in the very first book of the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus, God Himself, became a human being so that He could be where we are. In the book of John, it says that that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says that when God makes all things new here on earth, God will literally move His throne room from heaven to the new earth so that He can be where we are. And so you see throughout the Bible, God always wanting to come meet us where we are, but not just physically, but also emotionally. There are so many examples, but I'll just share one in John eleven verses thirty-two to thirty-five.、Um, a man named Lazarus dies, and when his sister Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. And Jesus wept. Here you see this beautiful example of Jesus emotionally meeting people where they are, even though he knows later on in the story we find out Jesus is planning on resurrecting Lazarus, and he does. So he doesn't really need to cry. But he weeps because he meets them where they are. He understands the grief that they're experiencing, and he weeps with them. That's an incredible ability, right? That that compassion, that empathy. But God also comes spiritually to where we are. In Psalm 139, verses seven to ten, the the writer says, "Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there." If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And then it goes on to say, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. 
The night shall shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I wish I could take the time to unpack what that verse is really saying. But what the writer is saying is, hey, even if I just dive into the deepest sin, right? Even if I'm in the darkest place, even if I'm in complete rebellion against God, God comes to where I am. And in the story of Jonah, he runs away from what God wanted him to do. He, he takes a ship to the farthest place in the ocean he can possibly think of to get away from where God wants him to be, which is the city called Nineveh. And then he actually th- gets thrown overboard into the depths of the sea. Okay? This is a guy who is unworthy of God's, um, God coming to him. This is a guy who has already rejected what God has called him to do. And after the fish swallows Jonah up and he is, you know, the bottom of the sea, even there, it says in Jonah, can I get priority screen party? Thank you. Um, in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God and he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And then verses, uh, wait. Oh, there's a uh, slide missing. But in verses 5 to 6, it says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. I love how Jonah is saying, there's seaweed wrapped around his head, right? He's in the darkest, deepest, you know, place that he could be. He's already rejected God's call. He's already run away. And yet, even there, he says, you answered my cry for help. God also comes mentally to meet us where we are. There's a man named Elijah who has, um, can I get screen party again? Thank you. Uh, who comes, who runs away from a queen named Jezebel who's trying to kill him. And he comes to a place uh, under a tree. And it says in First Kings chapter 19, verse 4, And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And here's Elijah going through a mental health crisis. He's, here he is just feeling burnt out and exhausted, feeling like he can't go on anymore. And notice how God responds to him. (laughs) Thank you. He says, he sends an angel who touches him and says, arise and eat. Notice how God doesn't come to him at this point. There's Elijah saying, I'm all alone. I'm the only one left out of all of God's faithful followers. You know, it's better for me to die. And, And God doesn't come and correct his thinking straight away, right? He doesn't come and do cognitive behavioral therapy straight away. Instead, God comes to him and says, hey, eat some food, right? Eat some food. He ministers to him and he says, here, have a drink. He lays down and the angel comes back, touches him and says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And then after 40 days and nights of Elijah experiencing this, then God does give him some um, cognitive therapy in that he, 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 addresses then the mental thinking that Elijah had. God comes to him and says, actually, you're not alone. You think you feel alone, but there's actually 7,000 others that I have who are faithful to me. And in fact, one of them is Elisha. 
and he's going to be a successor, and God has a whole plan in place. And he, and he tells Elijah that. But he doesn't do that straight away. He ministers to Elijah where he is. He meets him where he is. He understands that he's not ready to hear the truth yet. And I'm giving all these examples of God meeting humanity where they are to illustrate if God is willing to come physically to where we are, right? If God comes emotionally, mentally, spiritually to where we are, is it any surprise that God comes culturally to where we are? I want you to think about that for a moment. In other words, God meets us where we are in history, in our cultural context, in order to come alongside us and then to walk alongside us and invites us to follow him as he then moves us closer to his ideal. But he doesn't demand it overnight. He doesn't show all his revelations straight away. For example, one of the earliest stories found in the Bible is that of a man named Abram. And he has a wife named Sarai. They lived around 2000 BC in Mesopotamia, one of the world's earliest civilizations. And in this ancient Near Eastern context, the most important preoccupation was survival. Not just their own survival, but the survival of their family lineage. That was the most important thing for them. And so marriages were legal contracts between two families, and the purpose of marriage in that context was to perpetuate the family lineage. That was the purpose of marriage then. And so if they couldn't have children, then it was the culture of that time for often actually the wife to go find another woman who would be the surrogate and, and bring about heirs that she would then adopt as her own for this family. Different um, early ancient civilizations had different nuances in what that meant. Well, Abram and Sarah lived in this context. And so after waiting many, many years for, for children, they don't have them. And it's actually when uh, Abram is 75 years old and Sarah is 65 years old, when God comes and says, I'm going to make you, into your descendants as numberless as the stars, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, it's already kind of impossible for them to have this, but they're actually quite faithful in that they wait for God's promise to be fulfilled. They wait a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years they wait. After 15 years, right, Sarah is now 80 years old. And she decides, you know what? I think I need to do something about this. So then she had an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. So he, she goes to um, Abram and says, I want you to take Hagar and have a child by her that I can then adopt as, as our son. And Abram does this. And God does not condemn them. Does this mean that God condones polygamy? Does this mean that Roy cannot go get a second wife? <laughs> I'm watching to see your reaction. <laughs> Why is it that God did not condemn Abraham and Sarah for this practice? And in fact, we see, uh, you know, a few generations later, Jacob, another patriarch, he had four wives. You come to David, multiple wives. King Solomon, multiple wives. And you never see God outright, expressly 
uh, condemning polygamy. So what does this mean for us? Like I said, does this mean that we can now all go and get um, second partners, third partners, right? I would love to have another person in the house to do the cooking and cleaning. <laughs> so we'll talk about this later. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so imagine, imagine, you know, for the modern reader, without understanding historical and cultural context, reading a story like Abraham and coming to the conclusion, ah, God doesn't condemn it. It must be all right. But most of us would not be comfortable with that. And that's because most of us understand that when you read the Bible, you have to read it in context and also read all the Bible says about a topic. So based on what the Bible says about marriage in Genesis, based on what Jesus talks about marriage in, in, in his time, based on what the New Testament uh, letters say about being faithful to one person, the overall conclusion from the Bible is that marriage is a covenant, lifelong uh, relationship with one person. But why is it that God did not make a deal of it in their time? Why was it that, you know, 4,000, 2,000 years ago, well, I guess 2,000 years ago he did, but 4,000, 3,000 years ago, it wasn't something that God addressed overtly with his people. And this is one of the examples of where I'm trying to make the point. God meets us where we are culturally. And over time, right, just as his promises take time to be fulfilled, Abraham and Sarah eventually did have a son of their own. When Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100. So they had to wait almost, no, exactly 35 years for God's initial promise to be fulfilled. And so just as God's promises take time sometimes to be fulfilled, in the same way, God's ideals and revelation are not fully rolled out all at once. It takes time for his truths and his principles to be, um, I guess, fully fleshed out in humanity and in how he interacts with, the, with humanity. Here's another example. Polygamy was one example. Another exa- is, is the example of slavery, how God deals with slavery. So as mentioned, Sarah had an Egyptian slave. Why didn't God condemn Abraham and Sarah for having slaves. In fact, it's actually very interesting. Abraham and Sarah um, had an Egyptian slave. And it's interesting that 400 years later, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah end up being slaves in Egypt. So interesting thing to think about. Now, the Israelites, as they become known, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, they're treated very badly in Egypt. They're forced to labor to build the great monuments of Egypt. And Pharaoh even orders the execution of all male babies at one point to call their population so that they don't rise up in rebellion. And it's this point in history that God does something. He raises up a leader named Moses who comes and frees the Israelites from slavery. And then when they go and become a nation, we find God giving laws regulating slavery. Regulating it, but not abolishing it. When you go and look at the the laws that God gave the Israelites in Leviticus, he talks about treating um, the slaves justly. He says, remember, you were once also slaves, so treat your slaves fairly. 
justly, and he has laws about you know uh, protecting them and laws about how to treat them with kindness. But he doesn't actually abolish it. In the first century Greco-Roman times, Christian slave owners were also not told to release their slaves. Instead, they're told Colossians chapter four verse one: "Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven." So again, does this mean that God condones slavery? Does this mean that today we can have slaves? And we would be very uncomfortable with that once again, and we would be rightly so because we know from the overarching themes of the Bible and how God deals with humanity over time that we are called to uphold justice and equality. But do you see how these principles that we have today, principles which have founded Western civilizations like Australia, right? The Constitution of Australia was founded on Christian principles. The reason why it's illegal to um, have multiple partners here, the reason why it's illegal to have slaves here, a lot of that is because of the Christian principles and the Christian men and women who shaped the laws of this country. So why is it that we have come to understand this? But when you go back to the Bible, you realize that it's not expressly um, stated from the beginning. Again, it's because God meets us where we are. Here's another example. When God brought the Israelites out of uh, slavery and he made them a nation, he gave them a governance, a system of governance. And one of those um, system details was that they had judges, judges who would roll over the people, give give um, pronouncements of, of fairness um, when people were at court with one another. But the people wanted a king. After some time, they're tired of judges, and they come to uh, the prophet at the time, whose name was Samuel. And the people came and said, we want to have a king rule over us so that we may be like all the other nations, and so that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. Once again, God meets people where they are. God didn't want them to have a king. But the people wanted a king, and so then God says, all right, I'll give you a king. And he anoints Saul to be king over them. God used language and symbols that the people would understand. A study of legal practices from the ancient Near East have shown that they have similar language as the legal materials in the Old Testament because God used terminology that they would be familiar with in order to institute his laws. Literary techniques and forms used in Canaanite literature were also used by the prophets to write the literature that we have in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you see the Greco-Roman rhetoric that was popularized in that day, used by, the, used by Paul in his writings. And so the expressions are encased in cultural context. Idioms, proverbs, common sayings of that time were utilized by the biblical authors because they were writing to their audience who would understand what that meant. But when we read it, right, Remember, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So when we read the Bible, we are missing a lot of that historical and cultural context. For example, 
Hey, James, can I get the volume raised a little bit? Thanks. I feel like I'm shouting. Thank you. For example, here's a very famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called The Last Supper. Now, there's a problem with this painting, and it's the fact that in Jesus' day, they did not sit at tables with it on individual chairs. Okay, that this is not how they sat. I remember my parents had um, a copy of this painting behind our dining table, and so I grew up with this image in my mind, right? But this is not actually how they sat. Jesus lived in the Greco-Roman context, and so when they had a banquet, they reclined at the tables. They didn't have these individual chairs. It looked more like this. And, you know, they would um, often lean on their left elbow with their, with their legs stretched out behind the table, and then they would eat with their right hand. It feels uncomfortable to me, but that was the norm. That was how they ate back then. So why does this matter? Well, in stories like this, in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 38, it says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. You see, if you think that this was the context in which this woman came, it doesn't make sense when the text says she came behind him and her tears fell on his feet. Because she would have to somehow crawl under the table, but then be behind, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But if you understand, oh, sorry. If you understand that this is how they were reclining at the table, then you see how that, for example, you see the feet of the gentlemen who are closest to us, that their feet are actually in open access. And so someone standing behind them would, if they're crying uh, behind them, her tears would fall onto his feet. And she would then, she, was, she, would, you know, she would be able to stoop down and cry and wipe Jesus' hair with her feet um, in that openness rather than crawling under the table and crouching there. And it makes a huge difference in how we picture this story of how Jesus would not be looking down at her, but would be looking across at her. And just it just changes how you read um, the rest of the story as well when you understand the historical context of, of what it meant that she had um, this alabaster jar. When you find out that uh, that jar of perfume was worth a year's wage for an average worker. In other words, today in Australia, I looked this up, that's $70,000 is apparently the average salary today. So that's $70,000 worth of perfume that she's got, that she's pouring on Jesus. Also, the historical context tells us that it was uh, shameful for a woman, like the proper women's attire was to cover their heads. In fact, men as well, a lot of them you see that they had head coverings. This is the Middle Eastern context. But this woman had uncovered her hair and risked criticism and judgment to wipe his feet. You also find out that historically, perfume of such kind were used to anoint kings and priests. You find out they were also used to anoint the dead in burials. So all of these cultural, historical facts give us so much more nuance to this story. 
when you then when you just read it with our context, well, one is really strange to us, right? To to think of somebody pouring perfume on someone's feet and wiping them with their hair. To us, that sounds really creepy and just awkward and weird. But in her context, it was significant. It was meaningful. It was her way of saying, I recognize you as king, as priest. She recognized Jesus talking about his upcoming death and she wanted to show him how she, how she wanted to honor him. It was an outpouring of her love and gratitude. It was an act of worship. Historical context makes a difference in how we understand a story in the Bible and the truth that comes from that. Here's another example. Um, oops. Four times in the New Testament letters of Paul, the Christian missionary Paul commands his readers to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, none of you kissed me today. <laughs> and so... Are we not following Paul's commands written in the word of God? Most Christians don't take this command literally. Why? Because we understand the historical culture context. In Greco-Roman culture, you only kissed close family members. And so when Paul commands the the believers to greet each other with a holy kiss, he's encouraging the believers to treat each other the way that they would treat their close family members, right? And as equals, because you definitely did not kiss people who were in this Greco-Roman society inferior to you socioeconomically. But Paul is saying, hey, greet each other with a holy kiss. Holy, you know, being with that, it's talking about the heart, genuine intent, right? Not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but because you genuinely care for each other. How you apply this idea to our current context depends, right, on your culture. You know, I grew up in a Korean-American um, church, and for the first, you know, however many years of my life, go to church, and I would greet my church members by bowing. In fact, you know, we have Erin's um, mom visiting us, and I t- as soon as Micah came in, I told Micah, bow to her, right? <laughs> and he knows, ah, this is a Korean person. I have to bow, Right? <laughs> And then, you know, growing up in the Korean-American uh, church setting, I did the bowing. Then I, when I was working for American churches, um, hugging. Americans love hugs. So, so much hugging, right? And then I, was, I went to France, kissing, right? So much kissing, right? The double kisses, strangers, everyone. Like, if you're a woman, you pretty much get kissed all the time. Like, men don't always kiss each other, but... If you're a woman, you kiss women, you kiss men, you kiss everybody. And so depending on where you are culturally, right, how you greet each other warmly and show someone in the church that that you are giving them respect as well as affection, that's going to differ, right? In Australia, it's more appropriate maybe to, to shake hands. I remember when I first moved here, so used to hugging, right, American. And I remember meeting um, <laughs> some people that I won't call out right now, but... And uh, the second time I saw them, I know them, so I went to hug them. It was a guy. And I could tell immediately in his body language, I did the wrong thing. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, note to self, Aussie men, don't hug. <laughs> I will keep that in mind. But, you know, every cultural context is different. And so when, when Paul is saying, greet each other with a holy kiss, we know, okay, we have to contextualize what, what he's actually trying to say. The problem is we only do this with certain texts but we don't do this with all texts. 
And I guess what I'm trying to emphasize for all of us today is we have to do that for all the Bible passages. To first go to it, meeting them where they were, getting the principles, and then applying it to today. Some Bible translations take these historical contexts into consideration when they translate. Most Bible translations will say, greet each other with a holy kiss. But for example, the common English Bible says, be sure to give each other a warm greeting. And all of Christ's churches greet you. And this is why translations matter. The words, the expressions, the languages used in the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic are so far removed from English that the translators have a challenging task of coming up with the right words. They do their best, but it's not always easy, especially if they're dealing with difficult words to translate. I know French, German, Korean, and English, and there are some words that you just can't translate between them. Like, there's a Korean word, since I'm just looking at the Korean people here, that, that's, it's Han. And it, it's, in English, it's like frustration, agony, grief, like, it's like a, it's like a mix of those things, right? But there's a whole history to that word that just cannot be translated. And so for those of you who, ha- who have different languages, you understand what I'm saying when I say the English translators of the Bible, they did their best, but you know, ultimately, it's not going to be exact. Also, words change, right? The words morph. For example, how would you translate the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs? Would you translate it literally? I remember when I first came to Australia and I heard someone say, oh, it's so cold as. And I waited for them to finish the sentence. I'm like, cold as What? Cold as Antarctica, cold as ice. I'm like waiting, and then I realized that's it. That's all they said. It's cold as. And then I learned that it's an expression. It's an Aussie expression that just means it's really cold, right? So even though I spoke English, right, from America, I had to learn a different language here. Um, and it's not just, you know, the the context in terms of culture, but in terms of time, in terms of generation, words change meaning. For example, the word cool. If you use that word today, you're not cool, okay? But there was once a time when that word was cool. And even that word, if you think about it, um, if I gave the example, if I said, the weather has been really cool, so I bought a really cool jumper. And I thought it was really awesome until I showed it to my friend who looked at it and said, a cool jumper, okay? Immediately you get in that, that sentence alone, the run-on sentence, but you get in that multiple, three different definitions of cool. Cool can mean calm and collected, but it can also mean unfunny and disengaged. It can mean avant-garde, but like I said, Gen Z would never you say cool, right? And I looked up what Gen Z's use now, and there's no way I will repeat those words here. I will just date myself and look really uncool. But the point is, language evolves over time. So even the same word used today versus 10 years ago, completely different meaning. And so successful translators are doing their best, but we have to keep in mind that the King James Version of the English language is very different from the English that we have today. 
we have to understand that even the modern translations of the NIV words may be different today, and that connotations change over time as well. I want to give you an example of uh, of a word that translators have had to to uh, translate differently, even though it's the same exact word. For example, the Hebrew word barak, what does it mean? Well, 302 times in the Bible, it means bless. But four times in the Bible, it's translated as curse, the exact opposite. And all of those four times are found in the book of Job. In fact, they're found in like the same sentence. So let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed Barak, the worker of his hands, so that his flocks and his herds have, are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse Barak you to your face. Same exact word translated as opposite meanings by the English translator. Why? Because of context. Just like the word cool can be used three times in the same sentence and mean very different things, right? Hebrew words were translated differently based on context. So, in my previous sermon um, on biblical equality, I talked about the different Bible translations and what motivated some of those translators and why the different translations exist. So I'm not going to repeat that today, but I do encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and watch it. And this was a chart that I shared during that sermon showing the major English translations of the Bible when they were translated and some of the main kind of events or notes about them. So like I said, I'm not going to go over it today. If you missed it, go back uh, on our YouTube page and watch. Uh, it's the sermon titled Biblical Equality Part 2, Myth-Busting Gender Rules in the New Testament. And I talk about the, trans the history of the translations there. For today, I just wanted to really drive home the point. God meets us where we are, right? And the Bible shows a God who meets us where we are culturally, and then invites us to become countercultural in our lifetimes, in our generations, and in history. I want to point out that Herodotus, who is known as the father of history, because he was one of the first to write down narrative history uh, of ancient Greece and Western Asia and Egypt between 550 and 479 BC, he's known as the father of history. But did you know that a lot of the Old Testament, most of it, in fact, were written before Herodotus wrote his histories? In fact, the first several books of the Bible were written a thousand years before Herodotus. And yet we take Herodotus as um, a, a reliable historian of our Greek history, of the Greco-Roman world. And I guess I'm pointing that out to say the Bible is an ancient book. Okay? Let's not forget that just because we have access to it, that it is not an ancient book that requires some study and some um, effort on our part to understand the context. Because it's an ancient book, it has relevance for us today, but we have to approach it with humility and prayerful study of the historical and literary context. 
God meets us where we are, but he invites us to follow him farther up and farther in, to quote Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I love, have you read um, Chronicles of Narnia? And, and C.S. Lewis has this great mind, farther up and farther in. And I think that's what God does with people, right, in history. That God is, God is calling Abraham and Sarah to be faithful to him, but he didn't point out every single thing they were doing wrong. He, he, did, he didn't, you know, address polygamy and slavery and, and um, social economics and, uh, you know, how, how their, their worship practices and, and Sabbath. And he didn't reveal everything all at once. He addressed what was most important to them, which was, at the time, their preoccupation with lineage, right? And he came to them and said, I will be your great reward. I will provide you with what you are looking for. I will make you a great nation. But Abraham had to have faith. And, and, and God comes later to humanity where they are. And he says, hey, you guys, Jesus comes and says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Right? And so God is saying, hey, you know this, but let me show you more. Let me show you further clarity, farther up and farther in. And Jesus says, come and follow me further into the New Testament where Paul is able to declare there is neither Jew or Greek, male or female, right? Slave or free in Christ. So farther up and farther in, God is calling us to greater revelation of himself and his will for each generation to become more just, more righteous, more merciful. If almost 4,000 years ago, God told his people to treat foreigners and slaves justly and if over 2,000 years ago God told people to love your enemies then what might God be saying to us today as we go farther up and further in towards God's ultimate ethics and morality and will what might God be calling us to today about faithfulness and community the answers aren't immediately clear and I think that's a good thing because it forces us to seek God rather than seek a list of rules to follow. We have to listen to God, to listen to his present truth for us today, rather than just relying on what has been discovered before. God wants us to go to the Bible and recognize that it is the living word because it has something to tell us today. Something new, something that is directly involved with our lives here in Melbourne in 2023. And that's what's exciting about the Bible, right? That's what's so inspiring about coming together and studying together is that there is guaranteed to be new truths that God wants to show us. New applications of a universal truth that at one point meant something else, but now means something that cuts deeper into our comfort zone. And so I want to leave you with that challenge. We're about to go into our discussion time, and today we're doing something a bit different. Today we're actually going to be looking at a passage in the Bible. And then I've got some historical facts about that time that will then help us understand the passage better. So don't cheat <laughs> when you get to the discussion questions. Just read the passage without reading the rest of the, what's on the page. But after you've read the passage, then read some of the historical facts and then look at how does that color and change and enlighten our understanding of the story? How does it impact the application of that story for us today? For those of you watching online, we invite you to do that in the comfort of your homes as well. 
And then next week, as promised, I will share step by step the tools and the steps to what is called exegesis, which is just a fancy theological way of saying how to read the Bible correctly. And we'll go over those steps together. And during discussion time, we're gonna we're gonna practice that together. And we will continue to do things like this in the future as well, so that we can be equipped to correctly interpret the scriptures and correctly see a picture of God that we can be excited about and a picture of God that we are we are excited to share with others so that our Christianity can be a real and living testimony and not just something that someone told us about, but a living personal encounter with God. This is my prayer for all of us. Will you join us? Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you meet us where we are and that you understand that as kind of like children who can't understand everything all at once, you, you, you teach us things and you clarify things and you, and you challenge us further as we grow in our knowledge of you and as we grow as generations and in history into a closer picture of who you are like. Father, we thank you that in the Old Testament times you gave the sanctuary so that people could visually see the plan of salvation. We thank you that in New Testament times you gave Jesus so that we can, we can physically see an example of a human being living out your principles. And we thank you that in 2023 we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us to live out what it means to be your followers today. We recognize, Father God, that we have not always done this well. We have not always been diligent in in doing this well. But Father, we ask that now and in the future, we would be equipped, that we would be humble, that we'd be willing to consider what you have to teach us today. And that we would experience as a result such a wonderful experience with you, that we would be converted from inside out, and that... As a result, Father God, we don't have to, you know, think about reading as a chore, but that we would come to your Bible hungry, hungry for you, and that you would satisfy us. I pray in your son's name. Amen.